0: You are now listening to British Murders, the true crime podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast that focuses exclusively on British murder cases and serial killers. I'm your host Stuart Blues and this is part two of the season six special. Hopefully you've already checked out part one. If you haven't, please pause this episode, listen to part one first, and then come back to this one. Before we get into part two, let's break the ice as always. The show's opening icebreaker segment is this. Welcome to Daddy Facts. Here is part two's Dad Fact. Due to contractual obligations, the role of John McClane in Die Hard had to be first offered to Frank Sinatra, who was 73 at the time. I don't think Frank Sinatra saying "You ki motherfucker would have gone down well with any audience. As I said in part one, this case was suggested via email by listener Victoria Craig and via messenger by Kath McCartney. Again, let me quickly advise you that this podcast contains elements that may be alarming to some listeners. As always, listener discretion is advised. Part one of this story ended with Scottish serial killer Peter Manuel killing Marion Watt, her daughter Vivian Watt, and Marion's sister Margaret Brown in the early hours of September 17th, 1956. We'll start part 2 of this story a couple of days before, on September 15th. We'll start part 2 of this story a couple of days before. On September 15th, 1956, a break-in at a house over the road from the Watt family added further detail to this already convoluted story. Peter Manuel broke into the house of Margaret and Mary Martin, a pair of retired sisters who had left earlier that day to go on holiday. He used the empty house as his base and treated it with zero respect. He trashed the entire place but stole nothing. The same method used to break into the Watt home was used when entering the Martin home. He smashed the front door's glass panel before letting himself in. When I say he stole nothing, that's not entirely true. He stole a pair of one of these sister's nylon tights and used them as makeshift gloves when breaking into the Watt house. On the day of the Watt family murders, Marion Watt was due to receive a wake-up call at 7am from the phone company. Nobody answered despite them calling three times. A couple of hours later, the family cleaner arrived, but nobody responded when she knocked on the door. That was most peculiar. It's not clear how, I assume she had a key, but the cleaner eventually entered the house and discovered the massacre inside. She reportedly ran outside and spotted the postman doing his morning rounds. She ran over to him and shouted, there's been a murder. The police were then called and the entire house was sealed off once they arrived. Whilst conducting house-to-house inquiries, the police discovered that the Martin home had been burglarized in such a way that they believed they knew who was responsible. The murders were being treated as a different crime altogether, but Peter Manuel was soon taken in and charged with breaking and entering. The next part of the timeline is also a little bit hazy. Still, from what I could gather, I understand that Peter was found guilty of breaking and entering and sentenced to serve another 12-month jail sentence in Barlinnie Prison, Scotland's largest. It's known as the Big Hoose Bar or Barrel. I assume that's what the prisoners refer to it as. With his jail sentence starting in October 1956 and ending in November 1957, Peter spent 13 months in jail on that occasion. But what about the murders of the Watt family? The key suspect, believe it or not, was the family patriarch, William. After calling home on the evening of September 16, 1956, William went to the hotel bar and had a few drinks with the hotel's owner, Mr. Leitch. It's either Leitch or Lee. You know what I'm like with pronouncing stuff. L-A-I-T-C-H going to go with Leitch. Retiring to bed a half hour after midnight, William had plans of an early start the following day. Bearing in mind he had his car booked in for another check, he likely wanted to get up extra early to do some fishing. That's what he was there for, after all. The following account comes directly from Jack Smith's fantastic book, The Beast of Birkenshaw, Life of Serial Killer Peter Manuel. It's a must read if you're interested in learning more about this case. William Watt had borrowed an alarm clock from Mr. Leach so that he could set it for 6am and be on his way to catch some fishies. What he'd done was set the alarm for 6pm rather than 6am, so it never went off. He would later explain that he'd disabled the alarm when actually he'd just set it wrong. That accidental lie didn't do him any favours with the police. William was next seen by one of the hotel's waitresses shortly after 8am on September 17th, 1956. He told the waitress that he had awoken naturally at 7am, putting him an hour behind schedule, but he had still driven to the local fishing spot to scout it out with plans to return later in the day. He'd gone back to the hotel for his breakfast. Here's where it gets interesting and starts to go wrong for William Watt. An overly keen journalist thought it would be a wise decision to call the work of Margaret Brown's husband on the morning her body had been discovered at the Watt home. It's worth noting that Mr. Brown had not yet been notified of his wife's demise. The journalist didn't outright say why he was calling. For legal reasons, one assumes he wasn't able to. Not that what he was doing was legal or ethical anyway. But he likely wanted an early scoop for an upcoming article on the murders. The harassment continued until Mr. Brown had had enough and called the police to make a complaint. It was at that point he was notified of his wife's murder. Back at the Cairnban Hotel... A call came through from an individual claiming to be Mr. Watt's business associate. It's thought that it was likely the same journalist harassing Mr. Brown, but that's unsubstantiated. Note that he said Mr. Watt rather than William Watt. That raised a red flag for the hotel's owner upon answering the phone. When pressed to confirm Mr. Watt's first name, the caller explained that he had forgotten, at which point Mr. Leitch hung up. Another call came a few minutes later. This time it was someone who legitimately knew William Watt, his brother, John. John informed Mr. Leitch that William's wife, daughter and sister-in-law had been murdered in their home in the early hours. William was sent for by way of a taxi organised by Mr. Leitch and the news was soon broken to him. Making his way home in cars driven by a generous local and a policeman, William did his best to put on a brave face, which included him solemnly smiling whilst talking to the police officer. The officer took that as confirmation that William was likely the one responsible for killing his family. Now, the distance from the hotel to the house is roughly 94 miles. To get from the house to the hotel, you have to drive northwest through the middle of Glasgow, across the River Clyde, drive up the full length of Loch Lomond's west side, around the top end of Loch Long, up past the west side of Benheim, Benim, across then down to Castleton before coming back up towards Loch and arriving finally in Cairnban. My point is it's a hell of a drive, albeit a ridiculously picturesque one. Still, the police thought that William had done that drive, killed his family in the middle of the night, and then driven back to the hotel before finally being seen by the waitress who assumed he'd been there all night. Hell of a plan, but there's a fair few flaws in this apart from the ridiculousness of it. To make it even less believable than it already is, the Erskine Bridge, which crosses the River Clyde from Erskine to Old Kilpatrick, was opened by Princess Anne on July 2nd, 1971, almost 15 years after William allegedly made that drive. In 1956, the only way to get across the River Clyde was by boarding the Erskine Ferry. The police didn't care. They were convinced he could have made that journey between 12.30am and 8am, a four-hour round trip had a little bit of time for the murders. Plenty of time, that's what they thought. It was William's alleged history of being unfaithful to his wife that led them to believe he had motive to warrant such a long and ridiculous journey. The theory began to fall apart when the alarm clock issue came to light. It went off at 6pm that night. Remember he'd said it for 6am or so he'd thought. That just added to his testimony that he'd said it wrong, or as he said, disabled it. It was also revealed that a witness had seen him wiping the frost off his windshield that morning. There wouldn't have been any frost if his engine had been on all night. William's beloved fishing spot, the Crinan Canal, was searched as the police continued with the theory of him being the number one suspect. To everyone's surprise, but William, they found absolutely nothing. Amazingly, the triple-bereaved William Watt spent 67 days in Barliny Prison despite being completely innocent. It's frightening to think that the real killer, Peter Manuel, was serving his own sentence in Barline for breaking and entering. He could have been in a cell a few doors down from William. William Watt was represented by a lawyer named Lawrence Dowdle, and before long, Peter Manuel reached out to him and asked him to represent his conviction's appeal. Was this further mind games by Peter? Did he know who William's lawyer was? It's a remarkable coincidence if not. When Peter was released in November 1957, Lawrence Dowdell suggested that the pair meet for lunch with William Watt to clear the air. Imagine being a fly on the wall at that meeting. Peter knew he'd killed William's entire family, and William strongly suspected Peter to have done so. Meanwhile, in the middle of it all, Lawrence Dowdell likely knew both sides of the story too. The meeting was on December 3, 1957, three days after Peter's release from Barlini Prison and the two rivals supposedly cleared the air. Peter told a tale of how he'd met a man who'd asked him to break into the Martin House. A day later, he saw the man again and noted how much of a state he appeared to be in. He was implying that he'd killed the Watt family by that point. Peter said the man asked him to dispose of a revolver, so he threw it in the River Clyde. He was mixing the truth with fiction there, He casually admitted to throwing away the murder weapon in the river, but also shifted the blame for the actual murders onto a third party. With the full support of the police, Lawrence Dowdle continued to meet with Peter and encouraged him to continue telling the tales of his exploits. He slipped up at one point when he said that Margaret Brown had been shot twice, so his supposed friend had told him. Not even the press knew that information. Only the police knew. So either Peter's story of a mysterious assassin was true, or he'd committed the murders himself. Furthermore, Peter described the what house in explicit detail, all the while claiming it was coming from what the mystery man had told him. He even explained how each of the victims had been murdered. No detail was spared. Lawrence Dowdle eventually stopped indulging Peter, which annoyed him greatly to the point where he reached out to the lawyer with a detailed sketch of the murder weapon. He was making a rod for his own back. William Watt also continued to meet Peter in an attempt to gather evidence against him. William was told the man responsible for murdering his family was Charles Tallis. He explained away the murders as a simple yet tragic misunderstanding. Perhaps bored with mentally torturing William Watt and wasting the time of Lawrence Dowdle, Peter returned to his murderous ways on December 8, 1957. 36-year-old Sidney Dunn was a taxi driver and former soldier from Newcastle he had served in the Royal Air Force. Sydney typically met with a woman in Gateshead on Saturdays, but that weekend their plans had clashed, and they opted to meet on the Sunday instead. Sydney was last seen alive in his car in the early hours of that Sunday by a fellow taxi driver. He was with a customer who wanted to be driven to the village of Edmund Byers in County Durham. At around 8am that morning, one witness recalled seeing an abandoned car on the side of the road. Both of the front doors were open, and all of the lights had been smashed. Nobody thought it was something that needed investigating further. The situation was only looked at when a policeman happened to be cycling past and took a peek inside. Once he'd made his way to the nearest police station, the officer checked to see if there were any reports of a motor vehicle accident or if anyone had been admitted to hospital recently after a car crash. Nothing for either. When a team of officers began searching the area surrounding the car, it didn't take long for the dogs to sniff out the corpse of Sidney Dunn. He had been shot in the head at point-blank range and dragged away from the road to a more secluded area before being left there. It didn't appear to be a robbery gone wrong, as all of his personal possessions were found scattered around the area between the car and his body. With nothing to go on, the police initially thought this may have been a run-of-the-mill car accident. That soon changed once the post-mortem confirmed the cause of death as being a gunshot wound to the head. How the officers missed that, I don't know. A 38 calibre weapon was suspected of being responsible, the same calibre gun that was used to kill the Watt family. Appeals were launched for the passenger Sydney picked up in the early hours to come forward, as the police believed the taxi driver's killer had been sitting in the passenger seat when he pulled the trigger. Nobody came forward. Another dead end. Peter Manuel would not be convicted of that murder until after his own death. It was a coroner's jury that eventually found him guilty of Sidney Dunn's murder. Fast forward two and a bit weeks later to December 25th, 1957, Christmas Day. There's no ideal time to get burgled, but Christmas Day takes the biscuit. Reverend Alexander Houston and his wife returned home after presumably spending the morning in church conducting the Christmas morning service. Their house had been robbed by a burglar who had broken both the front and back doors. It had Peter Manuel written all over it. Metaphorically, of course, not literally. Amongst the items stolen were a pair of sheepskin gloves, a camera, a few quid from the collection box belonging to the church, and bizarrely, a sock. The gloves were the item that upset the reverend the most, as they were given to him as a gift from a neighbouring family whom he saw as dear friends. Another family living on the same street as the Glove Givers was Mr. and Mrs. Cook and their four children, who lived at 5 Carrick Drive in Mount Vernon. Mount Vernon, you'll recall, is where Peter Manuel attacked three women in March 1946. The Cook house was located only a few hundred yards from the footpath where the first victim was attacked. That was the woman with a three-year-old son. The eldest of the Cook children and the only girl was 17-year-old Isabel Cook. Isabel was a sixth form pupil at Hamilton Academy, a former school open from 1588 to 1972. It was described in 1910 by the Cambridge University Press as one of the finest schools in Scotland. On December 28th, 1957, 3 days after the gloves were stolen from Reverend Houston's house, Isabel was left home alone to babysit her three younger brothers. Mr and Mrs Cook left home around 4pm that afternoon for what reason I'm not sure. Isabel had plans to go to a dance at Uddingston Grammar School with her boyfriend Douglas Bryden that evening, so she held high hopes that her parents would be home in time. As it turned out, Mr. and Mrs. Cook didn't return home until 8pm, by which point Isabel had left her three brothers at home with their grandma and set off to catch a bus. The grandma told Mr. and Mrs. Cook that Isabel had left the house at 6.45pm, intent on catching the 7.30pm bus. It would come to light much later that Isabel's father believed she must have taken a shortcut to ensure she caught her bus in time. That shortcut would have taken Isabel along the same footpath I mentioned earlier, where Peter Emanuel attacked the first woman in March 1946. The plan was for Isabel to meet up with Douglas, and they would then travel to the dance together. That plan changed when Isabel didn't show up. Thinking she may have changed the plan without informing him, Douglas made his own way to the dance after waiting almost an hour for Isabel to show up. Isabel wasn't at the dance either. Perhaps she didn't fancy it, Douglas likely thought. How coincidental is this? Mr. and Mrs. Cook's phone line was not working properly that evening, which they only discovered later that night. Initially worried about their daughter not returning home or calling them if she'd decided to stay with a friend, the Cooks relaxed a little and assumed that Isabel had probably tried to call but couldn't get through. They were wrong. At around midnight, Mr. Cook went out with a torch to search for Isabel, but he found nothing. That left him with no choice but to call the police the following morning and report Isabel as missing. That afternoon, reports came back that some of Isabel's personal belongings had been found by the river and train tracks, including a bag, purse and some clothing. Isabel's killer was playing games with the police. Peter Manuel had scattered her belongings in pretty much a straight line from her house to his. Despite finding her clothes and belongings, Isabel's body was not found at that point. It would be almost three weeks later, on January 16th, 1958, that her parents would deliver the devastating news that their eldest child's body had been found. We've got a lot more to cover before we get to that part of the story, though. The story will continue after these quick messages. And now, back to the story. Let's Craig David back to December 31st, 1957, three days after Isabel Cook went missing, New Year's Eve. The next unfortunate targets of Peter Manuel were the Smart family. Married couple Peter and Doris Smart lived in Uddingston, a short distance away from where Peter Manuel was holding up at the time. Peter Smart was 45, Doris was 42, and Michael was 10. I have two different accounts of what Peter Smart did for work. One source said he owned a civil engineering firm, whereas another said he worked as an area manager for W and J.R. Watson building contractors. Maybe they were the same job, just described differently. On New Year's Eve 1957, Peter Smart finished work and paid a visit to the Commercial Bank of Scotland. A few mergers and decades later, the Commercial Bank of Scotland would become part of the Royal Bank of Scotland Group PLC, now known as NatWest Group PLC. Once there, he asked the teller if he could withdraw £35 from his account, just short of £800 in 2022, and once received, he appears to have made his way home. The cash was to clear some outstanding debts. He'd just been paid, as far as I can tell. He returned home with £25 in cash after using 10 of it to clear some debts. The key point about that cash withdrawal is that the notes were brand new, fresh out of the packet. That's something you need to remember. I'll get to why shortly. After celebrating the new year at home, the Smart family planned to take some time off to visit friends and family across Scotland. They planned to return home on January 6th, 1958. Sadly, that plan was stopped on New Year's Eve. After picking up some whiskey bottles from the local pub, Peter Smart left for home around 10pm. Seeing in the New Year in typical British fashion, the Smarts called it a night at roughly 2.30am in the early hours of New Year's Day. That's when neighbours recall witnessing the lights in their house being turned off. When the Smarts didn't turn up as planned at their relatives' houses, Each relative assumed they were with other relatives instead. That vital series of miscommunications meant no alarm bells were raised until January 6th, when Peter Smart failed to turn up for work. Peter Manuel's New Year's Eve consisted of spending the evening with his family at the pub. Short on money as he always seemed to be, Peter happily pocketed change meant for his dad after Samuel had bought the family a round of drinks. That sly theft was witnessed by Joe Brannan another Glasgow-based criminal. Joe took that to mean that Peter was struggling with his finances. Back at the house, Peter ensured he was the last one awake. A pull-out bed had been set up for him downstairs, as it was every night, so once his brother James had followed their parents to bed a short while after them, Peter seized his chance. He had an hour before his dad was due to get up for work, plenty of time to do what he needed. After making his way to the Smart House, a 15-minute walk away, Peter Manuel shot and killed Peter Smart, Doris Smart and Michael Smart as they slept. Peter Smart was shot and killed first, with Doris a close second. That makes sense as they will have been in the same bed, just like Marion Watt and Margaret Brown were. He killed Michael last and later claimed that he believed the youngster was an adult. Once finished, Peter pocketed the cash withdrawn from the Commercial Bank of Scotland, took Peter Smart's car keys, and made his way home. Reports suggest he even ate a couple of biscuits before leaving. Peter Manuel was reportedly fast asleep on the pull-out bed when his dad got up for work. Whether that's true or not, we'll never know, because Samuel made a habit of lying for his son to cover his tracks and provide him with alibis. Remember John Buchanan, the shopkeeper who led the search of the field next to his caravan, after hearing the scream of Mary McLachlan on July 30th, 1955. He opened his shop on New Year's Day 1958 and remembered that Peter Manuel was his first customer at around 10am. He bought a pack of cigarettes and appeared to be in a buoyant mood. Once his purchase was complete, Peter went to the pub to meet Joe Brannan. Despite appearing to be strapped for cash the previous evening, Peter Manuel was now splashing the cash and on more than one occasion bought everyone a round of drinks. Joe made a mental note of that. On January 2nd, 1958, a police officer was heading towards the River Calder. He was to form part of a search party tasked with finding Isabel Cook. He was suddenly offered a lift by a passing motorist and, happy to get out of the cold, the officer accepted. That motorist was Peter Manuel, driving Peter Smart's car. Next level arrogance right there. He was rubbing his crimes in the police's face without them realising. Peter dropped the officer at the crime scene, said goodbye, and casually drove off. Over the next few days, neighbours of the Smart family noticed the curtains were sometimes drawn and sometimes closed, indicating that someone was inside the house. As far as they knew, it was Peter Smart, Doris or Michael. Perhaps their trip had been cut short for some reason. The neighbours had no clue it was Peter Manuel making frequent visits to the property whilst the bodies lay in the same spot he'd left them on January 1st. As I alluded to earlier, Peter Smart failed to turn up for work on January 6, 1958. Highly out of character. Later that day, his workplace received a phone call from the police. They wanted to know why a company car registered to Peter Smart was seemingly abandoned in one of the rougher areas of Glasgow. Concerns grew as nobody could get in touch with Peter Smart and eventually the police broke into his house under the power of a search warrant. The bodies of Peter, Doris and Michael were soon found and the local papers had a new headline. Isabel Cook's disappearance had all but gone to the back of everyone's minds. The possibility of both cases being connected was never considered at that point. In a move considered out of character for the criminal underworld, Joe Brannan and several others had decided that they were sick and tired of Peter Manuel's boasts about the horrific crimes he had committed. They didn't take kindly to the murder of women and children, so the decision was made to break their own code of ethics. O'Merta didn't apply when it involved Peter Manuel. Joe Brannan went to the police and explained how he had some information they may be interested in. Peter's newfound wealth was the key thing of note, especially since there was evidence of Peter Smart withdrawing the cash from the bank, which was no longer at his house. I told you to remember the notes were brand new. Here's why. They had easily traceable serial numbers on them, which helped the police connect the cash in the till at the pub Peter visited on New Year's Day to the cash withdrawn by Peter Smart on New Year's Eve. Still, that evidence was only circumstantial. It didn't tie Peter Manuel to the crimes. A task force was compiled by the police, and their job was to track Peter Manuel's movements 24-7. They wanted to make sure he didn't kill again before they had gathered enough evidence to secure a conviction. For a full week, the officers monitored him whilst officers in the background collated their evidence. Finally, a search warrant was secured and a team of officers visited Peter Emanuel at his parents' home. It was either January 13th or 14th, 1958. I believe it was the latter. Arriving shortly before 7am that morning, the police officers showed the warrant and explained why they were there. Samuel kicked off big time, as you'd expect and once Peter had been summoned, he was uncharacteristically angry in the presence of the police. He demanded to see the warrant, and once he'd settled down, a couple of officers escorted him to the local police station. The other officers searched the property, and it wasn't much of a surprise when they found the missing gloves and camera that Reverend Houston had reported as being stolen from his house on Christmas Day 1957. Samuel insisted they were given to Peter as a Christmas present, but they knew he was lying. As a result, Samuel was also taken into custody. A shrewd move by the police that they hoped would lead them to gain a confession from Peter. Their plan worked flawlessly. Peter Manuel admitted to each of the murders he had committed once he was made aware that his father was also being held. To prevent the pair from corroborating their stories, they were held in cells in different police stations. Several identity parades were organised with witnesses selecting Peter Manuel as the one they recalled spending the cash in the pub on New Year's Day. In an attempt to shift the blame again, Peter told the police whilst being interviewed that a criminal named Samuel McKay, known in the Glasgow underworld as Dandy, was the true murderer. The daft thing about that lie was that Samuel McKay was a real person so the police simply questioned him and were satisfied that he wasn't responsible for the crimes Peter had said he was. The police made Peter uncomfortable by deliberately not telling him anything about where his father was or what was happening to him. However, they did say he was being held in Barlini prison. They knew how much Peter had hated his time there. On January 15th, 1958, Peter wrote a couple of letters in which he offered to willingly give information regarding the murders of Anne Neelands, the Watt family, Isabel Cook and the Smart family, if he was granted the chance to see both his parents. He even told the officers how he'd picked up that one officer on January 2nd who was on his way to the crime scene whilst driving Peter Smart's car. That officer would then correctly identify Peter Manuel from an identity parade. With a full confession inbound, the police allowed Peter to see his parents, but the meeting didn't go as he'd hoped. His parents sat silent as Peter struggled to admit what he'd done. After a brief and awkward exchange, the meeting ended, Samuel and Peter were led away, and Bridget went home. Samuel was released from prison a short while after that final meeting. It was only then, on January 16th, 1958, that Isabel Cook's body was finally found. 19 days after she went missing. Peter Manuel led the police to the spot where he'd buried Isabel in a shallow grave on the grounds of Burnt Broom Farm. Reverend Houston was tasked with breaking the news about the grim discovery to Isabel Cook's family. Peter Manuel's trial would be dubbed the trial of the century by the media. As always, Peter decided to represent himself. He was cocksure right to the end. It was a bold move considering the death sentence was still a thing back then, It was on its way out, but still relevant. The trial, which took place at Glasgow High Court, was overseen by Judge Lord Cameron. It was his first ever criminal case, believe it or not. What a way to introduce yourself. The eight charges against Peter Manuel were the murders of Anne Neelands, Marion Watt, Vivian Watt, Margaret Brown, Isabel Cook, Doris Smart, Peter Smart and Michael Smart. Sidney Dunn's murder was not discussed as it took place in a different legal jurisdiction. Pleading not guilty to each charge, Peter played the blame game again. In a twist worthy of being in any primetime TV court drama, Peter Manuel called William Watt to the stand as a witness, the sheer audacity of the man. He planned to make the jury think William had killed his family, but the plan backfired when William was wheeled into the courtroom on a stretcher to testify. William had been in a car crash a few days earlier, leaving him severely injured. It wasn't a good look to try and pin three brutal murders on a man in such a state. A similar tactic was used regarding the murder of the Smart family. Peter Manuel conveyed the story that Peter Smart had killed his wife and son before taking his own life in a double murder-suicide situation. This time, the jury was having none of it. They returned to the courtroom after retiring with guilty verdicts for seven of the eight charges. The only murder they didn't find Peter Manuel guilty of was that of Anne Nealance, as they felt the evidence against him didn't make him guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Judge Lord Cameron sentenced Peter Manuel to death by hanging to take place on July 11th, 1958. A poem was written by Peter during the trial in which he confessed to the seven murders he was convicted of. I won't read the whole thing, but here's the last four lines. And when they write my epitaph... These words they shall be seen. Here lies Peter Antony Manuel, Scotland's Frankenstein. Question Do you say Frankenstein or Frankenstein? I've always said Frankenstein. But perhaps that's wrong. On the morning of July 11th, 1958, his execution date, Peter Manuel was awoken at 6am and given his final meal. With it, he drank a glass of whiskey. His last words were said to be Turn it up and I'll go quietly. The radio was playing Tea for Two, a song I'm informed was very popular back then. I believe it will have been Doris Day singing her version of the song that Peter heard. After being led the short distance to the gallows at 8am, a a white hood was placed over his head before the lever was pulled by Harry Allen, one of Britain's last official executioners. Peter Manuel was the third last person to be hanged in Scotland on the back of a criminal trial. The second-to-last person was 19-year-old Anthony Miller, who was hanged in December 1960 after being found guilty of murdering John Crimmin. The last person to be hanged in Scotland was Henry John Burnett. He was executed in August 1963 after being found guilty of murdering Thomas Guyon. Peter Manuel is not only classed as Scotland's first serial killer, but is also seen as Scotland's worst serial killer. We've discussed nine murders in this two-part episode, seven of which he was found guilty of committing. Realistically, Peter Manuel's kill count was much higher. Many believe that the true count of his murder rampage could have been as high as 19. And that completes the story of British murderer Peter Manuel. Thanks again Victoria Craig and Kath McCartney for suggesting that case. Let me know your thoughts about it in the YouTube comments or on social media. I've got my remaining eight reviews to read now. Megadrama left the following five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you for your thoughtful treatment of a sensitive subject. You make me think and you make me laugh out loud at least once every episode. Keep doing what you do. Cheerio. Julie curtis Dalton left the following five-star review on Podchaser. Love listening to podcasts. As I write this review, I am now working my way through all episodes. Love the dad facts and your narration of each case. Well done, and keep up the good work. Vicky Murphy left the following five-star review on BritishMurders.com, stumbled across his podcast a few days ago, made my five-hour drive from London to Carlisle, and then the return go really quickly. Absolutely adore the daddy facts jingle and all your waffling before the start of the main story. Sammy left the following five-star review on britishmurders.com. Found this podcast when looking for something about British murders. That shows I've named it the right thing. I had been indulging in American ones previously. I have been binging this for a while now on my drives to and from work via Spotify, and I am loving it. So many I never knew about, and some I remember hearing about. And I've got to say, your voice is far easier to listen to than a lot of podcasts out there. I'd love to hear more about some from the 90s and noughties, especially ones which had been in the papers. Keep up the good work. My good friend Christian Raphael left the following five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Since its creation, my wife and I have followed this podcast avidly. The episodes are well-researched, concise, and engaging. Bluesy's dulcet northern twang has a hypnotising effect, and it is the perfect podcast to unwind to, minus the night terrors. Luke Ray left the following five-star review on BritishMurders.com. I love this podcast. I listen to it every day in my car if I can. I've got a lot of episodes to catch up on, which is fantastic for me as I can't get enough of them. So many murders have happened that I had no idea about or knew very little of, but now I feel like I can actually recite what happened when talking to my friends and family about it, if they want to, of course. Thank you, Stuart, for making my day-to-day journeys more bearable. Keep up the fantastic work. Patricia Debiech left the following five-star review on britishmurders.com. A lot of good humour. Great background information and obviously great cases. Thanks. And finally, Minty May recommended British Murders on Facebook by saying, only started listening around two weeks ago. I work three nights a week and I was looking for something to listen to during my shifts. I've always been interested in British murders and I searched on Audible for British Murders podcast and came across yours. Another win for the name of the podcast. What can I say? Wow, I love the bite-sized info and listening to these episodes makes my shift go quickly. I love the detail and the important information delivered. I also love the icebreakers at the beginning of the show in the later seasons. I love hearing about more known cases, but I also love the lesser known as well. Keep up the great work. I love listening to these and will keep doing so. Thank you so much Megadrama, Julie, Vicky, Sammy, Christian, Luke, Patricia and Minty May for leaving the show such lovely reviews. Suppose you'd like to leave a review of the show and have it read on a future episode. You can do so on iTunes, Facebook, Podchaser or at BritishMurders.com. You can also leave star ratings on Spotify. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or donate on a one-off basis via Buy Me a Coffee, you can find the links for each on my website. Please continue emailing your case suggestions to BritishMurderspodcast at gmail.com or message me via social media. You'll not only get the episode covered, but when I get to it, you will get a cheeky shout-out. That's it for the season six special. I appreciate it if you've made it this far. It's a mammoth of a case. Season 7 is going to start next Thursday. I've also got plenty of interview episodes to throw into the mix as well. For now though, I've been Stuart Blues. This has been British Murders. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time. Cheerio.